Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Make a small appeal to everyone here who comes to SACPA. Uh, please be mindful of that the lunch that we get here is made uh, by the kitchen, and if we get too many phone calls uh, the day of that they want something else to eat, it makes it really difficult for us to only charge $11 for the meals. So if you can be a little bit more mindful, phone the day before if you have dietary uh, requirements, but to phone uh, the day of and ask what's on the menu and say, well, maybe I'll just have a salad today, does not work very well for country kids and catering. So if you can be mindful of that, uh, much appreciated. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for... uh Thank you for being here today. We're going to get back to our question and answer period. First, the topic I'm going to announce for next week is what are the barriers to curbside organics recycling? I hope you'll join us next week for that. Bring a guest and bring a new member. And check out the website sacpa.ca. Suggestion box outside for any suggestions. And a quick, quick announcement. We've got... Uh, um, a Highway to Hope walker, Mike Masonville, is at our table. He's walking from Medicine Hat to the Alberta Legislature in July, leaving Medicine Hat. July, he's the man with the good-looking haircut. <laughs> July 18th, arriving Lethbridge in the 20th, and then up to Edmonton to try to raise awareness for homelessness. And uh, find him on Highway to Hope website, search for that, and find Highway to Hope on Facebook. If you can think of any way to ease his journey or help public awareness or uh, organize events in communities along the way or help. Thank you, Mike, for your work there. So we'll invite Audrey back up to the microphone for any questions. The microphone's over there for questions. Keep them brief. And thank you. And I'm back. Hi, Audrey. Hi. I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you so much for your very detailed, uh, informative, and also, in some cases, lighthearted talk. I liked your retrospective story of when you were uh, a young person starting off in this area. And, of course, we all make mistakes, and then we learn from them, and hopefully then we can use that in, in another situation. My husband and I were um, were mem- members of a church once that um, helped a person get off the street with his three children. He was found living in a car. And um, he ended up living in a house, but he really could not manage a house. In fact, he had no skills to manage a house and didn't know what to do with dirty laundry, etc. So when you mentioned the housing and that the people themselves get to choose the housing, I wondered if uh, you could tell us a little bit about the kinds of places people choose and if it's anywhere from a room to to actually a, a apartment or a house. And if it is a room, in 
um, what kind of a facility would that be? Would there be um, a cafeteria or something in some place for people to have socialization? Oh, absolutely. I think that's, uh, you just touched on something that I'm actually really passionate about. So when I talked about as we do this work, we start to discover the underserved. So uh, when people choose their housing, um, they choose what works for them, whether that's a bachelor suite or one-room apartment or uh, living in, you know, some people want to live in a trailer park around other people, whatever that is. Um, and quite often, as we've gone through the process of housing people, we have discovered people um, that can't live on their own, not for lack of trying. Um, they just don't have some of those overarching skills that help them stay housed, whether that be they have organic or sustained brain injury um, or some traumas that make day-to-day life a little bit difficult. So one of the um, really big missing pieces in our work right now is permanent supportive housing because we need um, some of the housing that's needed is housing that is staffed that does allow for those individuals to still have some support. It doesn't need, mean they need 24-7 intervention. Some individuals just need to know that someone is there in case uh, uh, they, they need some help. I'll give you a good example. I, one of the first uh, <laughs> homeless gentlemen that I'd ever dealt with, and he always, I was telling Larry about him earlier, because this man, he was a part of the Alberta deinstitutionalization. So he essentially grew up in a hospital, and then Alberta was like, oh, oops, we treated you guys really badly, so off you go. And, uh, well, that created a lot of homelessness. So this poor man, he had been homeless for now decades, and he came up to me, and he was extremely proud. He's like, Audrey, Audrey, I cleaned the coffee pots for you. And that's a big deal if you're someone who's never gotten to clean anything. And he came running up to me with the toilet brush. <laughs> So, you know, sometimes it's things, the things we take for granted, skills that were taught to us, not everybody has that, right? So uh, permanent supportive housing is something that uh, we really need to see more of a funding stream towards um, because we, the resources are there. We just need to be able to have the ability to start some of, those, uh, some of those things up because the reality is not everyone can live on their own. Seniors are another good example. We could use a lot more seniors housing and not all seniors that are uh, homeless, that get housed, are appropriate even for seniors' housing because now that they're older, they have multi-complex issues. Not only are they seniors, but they have the issues that come with homelessness for, for, being, uh, for being homeless that long. So, My name is Tad Mitsui, and thank you very much for coming thank you. to give us such an informative and inspiring talk. Uh, when I read the uh, promotional blurb of your talk, I was fascinated by one item. How can it be that giving homeless person a home is cheaper than what? Oh, geez, it's a lot cheaper. So <laughs> when you're homeless, <laughs> it, um, when you're homeless, uh, Quite a lot of things happen. So you can imagine if you are especially street-level homeless, you are exposed to disease, illness, injury, um, and being a victim of crime. A lot of people think, oh, homeless people are committing crime. Quite often, homeless people are actually the victims of crime. So when you're dealing with homeless individuals, usually each homeless person costs $100,000 or more per year in EMS and correctional services alone. That's just EMS and correctional services. This isn't talking about staffing for shelters and for initiatives and volunteer hours and many of the other funding for other projects that go on around homelessness. 
So when you're talking about to house the average person is about $35,000 per year as opposed to $100,000 per year, that's a big difference. Usually once people are housed and they're safe, emergency utilization goes down immediately. Um, utilization of other resources goes down immediately because they're safe and those same types of things aren't happening to them anymore. Um, and that would happen to any of us. If I was out on the street, I'm going to be in pretty, my health is going to decline pretty rapidly and I'm going to start u- utilizing services that I may not use now. So that's really um, how that economic benefit came came to be. So. Hello, Audrey. My name is Graham Greenlee. I'm wondering what the relationship between unemployment and homelessness is, or if, if unemployment is one of the major causes of homelessness. And also, do you think um, uh, some kind of a minimum living wage, a le- legislated living wage, would help? Oh, you guys have great questions. I'm liking you people already. All right. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. I I think that uh, equalizing the playing field does help quite a bit when you consider that we have some senior citizens that are living on $500 a month. I mean, what are you going to do with that? Honestly, (laughs) I know I wouldn't be living off that very effectively. Uh, There is definitely a relationship between unemployment and homelessness, and it's not people choosing to not be employed. Uh, Quite often people are underemployed based on qualifications. It's quite interesting sometimes when uh, having worked in the sheltering system, there's been times when I'm sitting in a room full of people with bachelor's and master's degrees. (laughs) So that gives you a little bit of an idea. People pay a ton of money for education and then uh, have nowhere to use it. So, um, and many people are underemployed. Um, a good example, uh, Medicine Hat has the lowest uh, lowest working living wage in Canada. So what we make is not proportional to what we have to spend to live. And that's the case in many places throughout Canada. So yes, absolutely, that can be a factor in homelessness. And also homelessness can cause unemployment. So when you have someone who does have a great job, but they can't afford to sustain their housing, well, now they become homeless. Most homeless shelters are only open for 12 hours a day. So if you're not sleeping and you're sleeping with 40 other people who, you know, aren't aren't doing so well, you're going to lose your job eventually because, well, you're exhausted and your needs aren't being met in the way that they could be if you were housed. So um, it's uh, it can go either way. Unemployment can cause homelessness. Homelessness can cause unemployment. So. My name's Robert Smith. I'd like to know how people qualify for housing and uh, how do you triage them? Oh, for sure. Um there's, uh, there's not just one set standard for qualification of housing. Um, a really great thing, I'd, uh, if you guys are bring a speaker back, definitely bring back Medicinac Community Housing. So I think they have a really amazing triage system. But we have a centralized triage point, which I think is really important because <laughs> you don't want a, a good example. What we do, for instance, is Medicinac Community Housing is our centralized triage and assessment. And they actually come visit the shelter every two weeks. And they bring their services to our participants, which is great because quite often when someone's traumatized, um, you can't send them for, to 25 different government offices downtown. They're just not going to make it. So centralized triage is extremely important, and that's one of the things we do that works really well. Um, 
one of the scales that they use is what's called the SPDAT. And if you need to know more about the SPDAT, org, uh, org code consulting is amazing with SPDAT, and you can find them on Facebook. Um, and it's basically, I, I joke, I call it the e-harmony of homelessness because <laughs> it goes through the 15 levels of instability. <laughs> and um, But it does work quite well because they go through, uh, it asks questions like meaningful daily activities. Um, it doesn't just center on, oh, let's talk about your childhood and see where we go. <laughs> so um, it uh, from there, from the centralized intake, they figure out what programs people are applicable for. So some people... Um, are great for housing first. Other people would go into a program called rapid rehousing, which means that they're really high-functioning individuals um, and just need support for the short term. Other individuals would be would go into diversion. So they're just people that need minimal worker intervention to kind of help them back on their way. So it just uh, other people would be applicable for subsidy or seniors housing, just depending on what their situation is. And that also doesn't mean that if someone's in a program, that they're married to that program. So say if someone's in a program, and their circumstances change, they can change to a different program that meets their needs. So, Audrey, thank you very much for you. your, uh, your talk today. Appreciate the information that you provided. It's nice to have a third party come into our community and uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, housing first and the whole realm and gamut of the area. I chair the... Your name? Gary Bowie. I chair the uh, Social Housing and Action Committee here in Lethbridge and have been involved with this program and trying to move this thing forward for the last uh, 12, 13 years. Wonderful. And so I really do appreciate it. And I uh, appreciate the fact that you're providing us information from someone who's been down on the front line. So I, that is really important. And as you're well aware, we do have some very powerful people involved in our community with regard to dealing with this issue. You've described things extremely well with regard to the housing first aspect, and something that took us a while to catch on to, and probably the whole of our country now is finally catching mm -hmm. on to the whole deal, and places like Medicine Hat and Lethbridge and others have, have been at it for a while now. I guess my question is, we've, we've really, we really know how at this point in time with the system of housing first yep, to do absolutely. things for the folks who are in need of help. But what is the next step that we've got to work on? And I'm, I'm asking you that question is what, what are you thinking about in Medicine Hat to move forward with regard to once we do have a graduate from housing first program, what, what are the next steps that we can begin to look forward to to, to help make a big difference? I, I think a huge, uh, we were talking about the analogy earlier, is our success is dependent on the cages that we live in. People being successfully housed depends on do you have a community worth living in? And that uh, is dependent on many factors. Does your does your a lot of um, things that lead people back into homelessness is lack of meaningful daily activity. So if those things don't exist in your community, if there isn't access to arts and culture and to things that they may find meaningful, it's very easy to lapse back into what you know. If you don't live in a community where there's an onus on social events, we're social creatures, and quite often if, if, if your social realm and who you know is on the street and you can't find a replacement for that, well, then you're going to go back to the people you know because loneliness is a huge driving factor. Um, even um, 
uh, another aspect because I don't think there's ever uh, an end point to this. It's not, uh, oh, yay, we ended homelessness, so everything's great now. Uh, I was using that analogy earlier. When you uh, when you lose weight, for instance, it's uh, you lose that 20 pounds or that 40 pounds or whatever, and it's really difficult, but it's maintaining that weight. That's the hardest part after, and that's the stage we're going to get into is maintaining. And so if people think they're having a hard time with it now, they need there we need to prepare for what's coming ahead and understand that maintenance is key which means community involvement is key so we need to get it back away a little bit from the media hype level back to community because we need to create communities that are worth living in because if people don't want to be housed in your community well they're not going to be housed for very long so we all need to have an onus on having communities worth living in as well as things like permanent supportive housing we need to um, look at who we underserve some of the most awfully underserved um, people in Canada are aboriginals veterans seniors and youth our youth are extremely underserved right now and they will be the next ones going into the adult system if we do not intervene immediately youth is some of the is their youth homelessness is exploding and the mortality rate for youth homelessness is extremely high and that's something we need to prepare for because that will be the next influx and we don't we want to be in a maintenance mode we don't want to keep creating 10-year plans for our 10-year plans like let's make this work and we do have the resources to do that so Douglas Mitchell I really admire your commitment and dedication to this work. Thank you. I have to say that right now I'm primarily an environmental activist and uh, therefore we encounter a lot of the same things that you encounter. Yeah. And you mentioned the word apathy amongst the general public at large. And of course the other one, big one, is money. Mm-hmm. And I like you to tell us uh, how you deal with both of these. Apathy seems to have spread across the country and uh, we look to our governments to try and give us some support but we don't get it in many cases and so I'd like to know how you deal with these situations. I mean I think all of them are, for those of us who are concerned about social justice They've got to be uh, at the front of our agenda to address. But how do you get there in terms of dealing with the public and with government? And where does your funding come from? Could you give us a brief rundown on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I I think what uh, the the creators of Housing First did very brilliantly is uh, when presenting to the government, they presented it to uh, from a fiscal perspective. So they actually um, they showed reliable data, and I'm not talking about the kind of data that you use when you want to skew things in your favor. We're talking about data that's actually real, viable, can be repeated. Um, they they showed that they're that it was fiscally responsible. So they kind of created a case where. The government couldn't say no, and the government actually has where Alberta was the first province to announce such an aggressive plan to end homelessness. So the government is very supportive because the fiscal responsibility just makes sense. When you when you go up to anyone in the government and say, hey, do you want to spend $6 billion or $3 billion? Well, they're going to pick $3 billion. So, I mean, that's a no-brainer for them. I think uh, <laughs> when you're talking about apathy, that's probably the, 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 the hardest thing because... 
like I said, we live in a culture that says, well, we either have to fix it all at once or do nothing. <laughs> so it's, it's showing people that they have a part in their own communities. It's putting responsibility back on individuals. And I think that's, that's something really North America lacks as a whole. It's always someone else's fault. My mom didn't hold me enough. I didn't get a red bike when I was seven. Someone else over there hurt my feelings, so now I can't function, you know? So we have to go back to owning it. Not that your hurt doesn't matter, not that the things that happen to you don't matter, but you still have responsibility. And the more that we take responsibility for ourselves and each other, that's the only way to break apathy. And it's hard. But the other part of breaking apathy is being honest. You can't save your face and your ass at the same time. So, uh, so as I've been in this field, I've gotten less concerned about saving my ass. So, just be honest. The only way to break apathy is honesty, and I think we live in a world where we try and make everything prettier than what it is, and sometimes the ugly truth is what will break apathy. People need to know that there are children dying. Even if you are still of the mindset that, oh, well, adults make their own decision, they can get themselves out of it, children have no choice, and children that are on the street will die. They don't just get to live and have a happily ever after. They don't go to these wonderful foster homes. People die on the street. Children are 40% more likely to die on the street. And this isn't a first world country. This is not something that's happening in Africa. There is no sponsorship programs for these children, and they are dying. In Medicine Hat alone, we had 230 homeless children. Think about that in a first world country. 230 homeless children in a city that small. That is unacceptable. We need to create a culture where the ho it's not the homeless person that's unacceptable, it's homelessness that's unacceptable. That does not ever need to happen with the amount of wealth we have. Uh, Art Sanford's a name, and uh, thank you for your comments, Audrey. And uh, it, 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 it's interesting, you know, it, it, for a time, I was a city councillor, and if you ever want to see politicians hit the panic button, watch what happens when a homeless person dies on the street. Yeah, That's when they start getting some action going in a Bet. hurry. But in the past, I have worked with both Habitat for Humanity and also as appeals on uh, people on Aish. And there's a great deal of problem there with your homeless people. And I'm wondering how you handle this when you have people living on the street who do not want to be in a house and it's a very difficult to house them or, or look after them, and they want to be left alone to wander the streets. Uh, what do you do when you run? And, and most of them have mental problems. You know, there's, there's serious problems there. How do you handle that? I mean, what do you do with those kind of people? Well, we had 40 individuals in Medicine Hat that were labeled that they would never be housed. They were actually coined impossible to house. They're all housed, so it's not impossible. It starts with we treat them with like a human being, and we start giving them housing options, and they'll turn us down because they don't trust us. And then we'll uh, ask them again, and again, and again, and again, and we will keep building their trust. And then we'll probably house them, and then they will probably leave their house because they still don't trust us. And then we'll house them again, and we'll keep doing that until they realize they're safe in their house, and that's how they stay housed. And then we advocate really strongly for them to get the mental health help that they need. But honestly, usually once people are housed, a lot of those symptoms go down as well. It goes back to the very simplicity of hierarchy of needs. If your basic needs aren't met, if the only thing you can concentrate on survival is on survival, you don't have time for self-actualization and mental wellness and bubble baths and all the things that we take uh, for granted. So we start out 
with giving them dignity, showing them that we're people of integrity that they can trust. And uh, and uh, a lot of my guys always bug me because I keep bugging them. I'm like, ready to be housed yet? No, Audrey. God, leave me alone. Ready yet? Ready? Ready? We just don't give up. We're just really annoying. <laughs> and and, we, and uh, we let them know. I think we have a culture of giving up. And we're, we have this... Uh, Yesterday was the Bell Talk for Mental Health, so we're really cool with hashtagging things. There's so many hashtag activists and slacktivists out there. We're okay with putting things on a Facebook status, but we're afraid of mental health when statistically there's people in this room that have suffered from mental unwellness. I myself suffered from depression for years working in the field, and it wasn't until I had a suicide attempt working in the field 10 years ago that I could feel that I could speak about it. That's me as a strong individual. Imagine if I was homeless. We have to create an environment where people can talk about mental health and feel that they can actually be safe. We have to have an environment where people can talk about things that are going on with them and be safe. There is no impossible to house person. I know it because I've housed those people. Every single person, once they trust you, will have that dignity. The last the one, the one individual that I housed that was impossible to house called me a year later and said, I started painting. Want to come see my artwork in my living room? And this was the most immaculate home I'd ever seen because for the first time in their life, they had something to care about. And our challenge is to give people something to care about. And yes, that's hard in this community because you have marginalized populations which we've created, so we need to take responsibility for them. Uh, Audrey, thank you so much for a very inspiring and informative uh, talk today. Uh, I want to focus on the... We have trainer. Thank you. <laughs> we already met earlier at the table. I'm forgetting about the rest. Uh, I want to focus on the children, mm -hmm. and uh, practically speaking, I'm wondering if in Medicine Hat, uh, there you have come up with ideas or programs that may be working well with the uh, with the youth that are experiencing uh, what you've just spoken about. I know that Medicine Hat is actively looking at strategies for um, youth homeless prevention, um, and that would be something really great if you guys had McMahon um, services back here because they deal with that uh, that end. Um, but I think the, the biggest thing is what makes it successful is we just acknowledged we had homeless children, for one thing. We even put it out there in the media. I mean, why, why pretend they don't exist? And uh, a, lot of, a lot of how the children got housed was housing the parents. And that's not revolutionary. A lot of kids are homeless because their parents are homeless. So quite often, if you if the parents become stable, they're in a place of taking care of their own children again, and they are they have the ability to be good parents because you've given them those tools. So it's it's really a no brainer. You house parents, you end up housing children too. So may I expand on that? Yep. Uh, I think part of what I was referring to was programs for kids so that they don't end up homeless to begin with? Is there anything happening that may uh, cause them to be in a different place say in the future? Is there anything happening at that end? I think those are the strategies that are, are coming up. Someone had asked earlier, like, where do we go from here? And I think right. that's what, uh, initially, we had this huge explosion of homelessness that we had to deal with, and now we have to look at, once again, 
what's the prevention piece going to look like? Well, obviously, we don't want people graduating from youth shelters to the adult shelters. So that is the that is the upcoming piece is figuring out how do we prevent that? How do we create healthier homes that children can live in? Um, because foster care isn't the answer. Adoption, we have more children that are unwanted then there is the capacity to take care of them. So that's obviously not something we're going to solve overnight. But it, that's, that is so multifaceted. That goes back to having, you know, teachers that are paid enough to care, uh, schools that aren't underfunded, um, available and affordable housing, um, uh, people being taught options um, or g- given options for parenting. I mean, there's so many. There's thousands of different aspects uh uh, with youth advocacy, and really, um, it's somewhere Canada needs to come further with it. I, I started out in youth advocacy um, many years ago, and we really haven't, not much has changed. So um, we have to look at those intervention pieces and acknowledge that uh, today's homeless children are going to be tomorrow's homeless adults, right? They don't just, it's funny because we look at stats and we're like, oh, look, all those homeless children disappeared. Well, that's because they went from being 17 last year to 18 this year, right? So they're just in a new stat pot. That doesn't mean they disappeared. They just got older. (laughs) So we have to really acknowledge um, the existence of it. And uh, there is no easy answer other than it goes back to community again. What can you do to make a child's life better? We always think it has to be these big overarching programs. But I guarantee each and every one of you knows a child that probably needs help. Sometimes it's just the the simple fact of being a nice person in that child's life. That's all they need. I've I've met people that said, you know what, it just took that one person in my life to care. Uh, I myself was taken care of by somebody who wasn't my parents, and it made a huge difference in my life. And uh, she went to the bathroom. Oh, there she is. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, uh, I myself came through the system. It took one, one woman to care about me for me to be standing here today. Maybe you can be that one person in someone's life. It doesn't always have to be a government program. Last question. Hi. My name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thank you very much for coming from uh, Medicine Hat. Audrey, one of the things, one of the reasons that we probably have you here today was uh, a few weeks ago there was a news item. The uh, mayor of Medicine Hat was interviewed by CBC. Uh, Globe and Mail, I believe, yeah. I think. And uh, so that kind of brought, a, brought it to our attention that Medicine Hat is uh, on the leading edge of uh, being a uh, homeless-free city in uh, Canada. Could you tell us a little bit more about that particular uh, news item? Uh, what, what brought that on? What, what, are, you, are you actually uh, homeless-free? Um, so let's talk a little bit about the definitions game first. Um, so when we talk about ending homelessness, more so what we're talking about is ending what homelessness the homeless experience is like for a participant. So when we talk about making things different, we look at, for instance, when someone is first time in the homeless continuum, we try to get them out within 48 hours because we don't want to normalize institutionalization for them because statistics show if people go without intervention within that first little bit, if it's their first time homeless, 
they may stay in the system. And usually when people still aren't in shock and they're not beaten down from homelessness, that's the best time to work with them. You can get them out and into housing again. We also look at having people out of the shelter system regardless of what's going on within 21 days. So I think part of the thing that works really well for us is we make sure that there's immediate access to housing. Does that always work flawlessly? No, but it's worked well enough for us, you know, to house 230 children in their families. So um, when we talk about ending homelessness, it's more what we've done well is we have effectively at this moment ended chronic homelessness and that itself should be a front page title we have ended chronic homelessness and i'm sure that's probably how it was put across but uh, when we're dealing with media titles words often get dropped or added so um and uh, that in itself 40 individuals that were considered impossible to house now have housing and that they they deserve all the acknowledgement in the world for that so uh um as for uh, media articles, media can be our best friend and our worst enemy. <laughs> it can take away from the work, too. So um, I always uh, think it's great to challenge what you read um, and uh, just uh, just have a critical mind <laughs> when dealing with the media. So, um, yes, uh, our, our city does amazing work, and we're very proud of what we do. And uh, with each thing we do, as I said, we find those that are underserved. And we'll, we're just going to keep doing what we do until everybody is home. Who knows when that will happen, but that's our, that's our mission. So aside from the media, aside from anything else that's happening, aside from, you know, what anybody else says, every day we go to work and we concentrate on getting people the dignity they deserve. And for us who are on the front lines, that's win-win. We don't do it for what we've done was unacknowledged for the first pretty much years of its existence. And it actually wasn't a popular cause to take up. So we're not in it for the glory. We're in it to, uh, you know, until every Albertan's home. That's not just a slogan for us. We do what we do until every single Albertan is home because they deserve that. Thank you, Aubrey. Would you all join me in thanking this young lady for coming from Medicine Hat?